Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 21, verse 14 through 19. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he had raised, was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve this new church plant as the pastor. Glad you can be here. I usually walk very close to the front row, and now there are actually people in the front row. This is very strange for me. So I'll probably spend most of my time over here. But thank you for filling up the front today. That's special. Um, We're a new church. We've been planted by a church in Encinitas called Redeemer. We've been here about three months. I believe we are in week 15. I have counted back the weeks that we have been together. We launched on April 21st, which was Easter. We have a vision for being able to be a church that can love well, understand the needs of the city, speak the language of people who have questions so that you can come and feel like you can invite or you can come and be comfortable with your own questions. And so as part of who we want to be, we're going to be casting vision for the church as we grow. A lot of the language that is used around church planting is very, I don't know, agricultural. Uh, Most of us uh, have black thumbs and not green thumbs. The way that I have been thinking about church planting has a lot more to do with Uh, the stages of growth as a human being, what it means to conceive of a church and then give birth to a church and then to grow a church, you realize that it's really hard and the people uh, who are participating in the life of this church, they are giving a lot. It's a lot of work. So number one, thank you for being a part of this. Uh, I think the work that you're putting in is well worth it. It is a lot to set up and tear down, church in a box, but this is not just for us. It is for people who are going to be coming. It is for this neighborhood. It's for our city. It's for Jesus. It's for him. And so it is a lot of work, number one, but the stages of growth remind us that if you are a new parent, for example, you can read all the books on parenting that you want, but until you take home that little baby, you haven't got a clue. That's number one. It's really one thing to study church planting or to study uh, uh, what it means to be a parent, but then to take that little baby home and to grow it is a really unique experience. I also have new parents who kind of lean in and say, uh, when is life going to return to normal? When am I going to get to rest? And some of you may be saying that right now. I've been giving a lot. When am I going to get a moment to rest? I don't know. I guess when you speak to new parents, the bad news is you go, I don't know, when they're 18? I I don't know when you're going to get a chance to rest. Uh, And not even past that. Is that right? Yeah. Um, But we lean in together. Right? That's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to be a family. And parents who have no support system 
they really struggle where they have one, two, three, five, ten children. It doesn't really matter. One is hard enough. But when you plant a church and you're doing it in community with one another, you lock arms, and there is a family aspect to it. So thank you for being part of that. We want to invite you into uh, being part of this church family. Let us know how we can love you, serve you. Use that Connect card, fill it out, even if you just have questions about Christianity. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're in week 15, as I've mentioned. I think this is the last week in this series. We launched this church with a series entitled Conversations with Jesus. We're going to be transitioning into around a four or five week series on the book of Jonah beginning next week. And so we invite you to come and be a part of that. But this has been a really fun series for me to preach and for others to preach with me. Uh, 15 weeks on conversations with Jesus throughout the Gospels. Even if you wouldn't agree that Jesus is the Savior of the world or the Son of God, these conversations, if you've been a part of this with us, they're intriguing and compelling because Jesus is this compelling individual. And so even if you wouldn't agree that He's the Savior, just the conversations themselves are rich enough and detailed enough and colorful enough to help you fill in some of the aspects of Christianity that Jesus wants us to get. Jesus, as he loves people, as one author put it, is painting a picture of what a healed and beautiful life looks like. That's what he's been doing throughout all of these conversations, and we just picked 15. There are probably hundreds. He is painting a picture of what a healed and beautiful human life looks like. Every broken heart that's restored, every broken relationship that's mended, every misconception of who God is that's been set straight is part of Jesus' bigger mission and his bigger vision, which is always this thing called the kingdom of God. He wants you to get a glimpse of what the king is like and what it will be like to live in his kingdom. That's what these conversations are ultimately about. And inside of this vision of the kingdom of God is this picture of what a healed and beautiful human life looks like as well. I have noticed, though, that there's potentially danger in these conversations. There's danger in the conversation if we step into them, we read them, we get disillusioned by them because the conversations and the unique aspects of those stories, they don't translate well into real time. And I live in real time, you live in real time, and this is an old book that feels like maybe there's some sort of disconnect between the mythology or the fairy tale of Jesus. Part of what I've wanted to do in these stories is to demystify the story and put the story in real time with real people, believing that Christianity is historical, that these were real people who had to step into a conversation with Jesus, and then they had to re-enter into normal life after that encounter, and we actually don't get every detail of the real-timeness of what's happening. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but the reality of these conversations is that there's often a prelude, and then there's a second chapter, but we get to look right there at the middle, but these are real people. I'm going to give you a couple of examples and then lead into John chapter 21. One of the stories that we looked at earlier in this series was from John chapter 3 about a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leading religious figure in his day. He was part of this party called the Pharisees. He would have been very moral. He would have been very upright. He would have been very respected. He comes to Jesus at night. He comes probably because he's slightly embarrassed because he's supposed to be a leading Jewish figure, and now he's intrigued by a Jewish carpenter from this no-name town called Nazareth. He has an incredible conversation about the kingdom of God. But what happens if this leading religious figure, part of the Pharisees' party, decides that he's going to put his faith in that man from that backwater town called Nazareth? What sort of social and religious pressure would he have encountered after that unique conversation that we got to look at? 
In other words, don't be disillusioned saying, man, Jesus, you're, you're, you're meeting those individuals in such unique ways. I step back into real life in real time, and my faith and my experience of you feels very different. I guarantee you that their life was not easy when they stepped back into society after those conversations. We're not given the detail, but we can guess and wonder. Another conversation that we looked at was from John chapter 4, this woman at a well. Jesus has an intriguing conversation with her. We come to find out in that conversation that she has been married five times and that the man that she's currently living with is not her husband. In that conversation, Jesus gets to her heart, and her life has changed. She starts running back into the village where she's been shamed over and over and over again. She didn't care about the shame this time. She starts talking about Jesus. What happens after this unique conversation that we leave inspired by when she has to go back home and have a conversation with that sixth lover? What does that look like? We are not told. But that is the reality of what that woman had to do upon her conversation with Jesus. She steps back in to real life in real time. One or two more. One of, the, one of my favorite characters that we got to look at a conversation was about this individual named Bartimaeus. He's from a small town named Jericho. The detail that we're given about Bartimaeus is that he was blind for the bulk of his life. Jesus heals him. He leaves his place by the city gate. He starts running towards Jesus. But what happens when he re-enters into Jericho society and he tries to get a job because he's too old, he's too young to not work? Right? What, what happens when somebody goes and he has a conversation with them and says, hey, Jesus has healed me. I have no education. I have no skills. I have no trade that I have been trained in. And somebody says, I'm sorry, I can't hire you. You've been blind the bulk of your life. I mean, what does that sort of faith look like? What do those eyes see? The leper who's been hugged by Jesus runs home hoping that his family's going to welcome him home, but they knock on the door because they've been in the leper colony for years. They knock on the door and the family says, he comes and says to the family, I've been healed by this guy named Jesus, but they're skeptical. They don't let him in. I mean, this is the real timeness of what likely happens to these individuals. We are not always given all the detail, but every single conversation demands the reality because, let me say this, Christianity is first and foremost historical. It really happened. And there are certain conversations and certain stories and certain snippets that each of the writers give us to get an understanding of who this man was as he paints the picture of a beautiful and healed life under this banner called the kingdom of God. But these were real people who had to really wrestle with re-entry into society after this amazing conversation with Jesus. And here in John 21, one of the reasons I love John 21 and the reason that we're going to end with this uh, this story is because we're give, we are privy to some very unique and significant real-time details in this story. What I'm going to try to do in a moment is reconnect it to other parts of the story. You're only going to hear, or what was read was from John chapter 21, but this is a story that goes back into John 13 and Matthew 20, uh, 26 and, and uh, uh, certainly here in John 18. So I'm going to reread some of that for us in a moment. But that's why this story is so unique, because you do get some of the real-time detail. It's important to remember that John 21 chronologically takes place after the crucifixion and after the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus, in particular the 12, would have been reeling after the events that have just taken place, the cross and the resurrection. 
Fear in many ways has become the dominant experience of the 12. They're trying to rally. They're trying to pull themselves together, but fear has become the dominant experience. They're trying to make sense of life in real time. Thomas, of course, one of the 12, he is going through an, uh, a very significant existential crisis. Thomas is the one who comes in doubts. He says, I got to touch you, Jesus, before I'm going to believe in you. He's grown cynical. He's hurt and confused. And then Peter, who is the main character alongside of Jesus in John chapter 21, Peter is in an absolute low in John 21. You have to remember uh, that if Jesus had a best friend, it was one of two men, Peter and the one who's writing the story, the beloved disciple John. Jesus has some, uh, an inner circle, and Peter was one of those men. Peter, as you read through the gospel, he is a vocal leader. He is the emotional leader of the disciples. Uh, he is the one who at least used to think of himself as Jesus' biggest supporter, biggest fan, right-hand man. In Matthew 26, Peter announces that even if everyone else was going to run, even if everyone else was going to fall away, that would never happen to him. I love you more than them, Jesus. I am your man. This would never happen to me. That's Matthew 26. In John 13, Peter promises that he's never going to leave Jesus. He'll follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes, even unto death. And then in John 18, 15, as Jesus is arrested and taken to trial, we read this. These verses will be on the screen. Verse 15 from John 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, which is John who's writing. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter, he stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. I'm going to go to verse 25. <clears throat> now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This vocal, brash, self-confident pillar of a leader, in John 18, he's fallen. And here in John 21, we find that Peter actually is still the functional leader of the 12 disciples. They're still looking to him for leadership. And earlier in chapter 21, Peter takes seven of the disciples, and they really don't know what they're supposed to do with themselves. They don't know what they're waiting for. They don't know if Jesus is coming back. They've heard rumors of his appearances. But Peter, for all intents and purposes, he knows full well that he has disqualified himself. I mean, he has abandoned his best friend. And so he knows that those three years of following him and preparing to lead and to love and to care for people, man, that is over. It is a wash. And so these guys are looking to Peter. They're going, what are we supposed to do, Peter? He goes, man, let's go back to our old life. Let's go fishing. So earlier in chapter 21, Peter takes seven of them fishing. And John tells us that evening they caught nothing. And as dawn was breaking, the unrecognized Jesus is standing on the beach and he says to them, children... Do you have any fish? And this is where I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. In verse 5, they answered him, no. Again, they don't know it's Jesus yet. 
No. And he said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Here is this man. He knows that he's been disqualified. He's taken seven of these men fishing. He sees Jesus about 100 yards off. He decides he's going to jump in the water. That's who Peter is. Don't you love him? He decides, I'm not waiting with these guys. They probably came in like 10 seconds behind him. He's been like swimming the whole way. He swims to Jesus 100 yards. He beats everyone to the shore. And the first thing that he sees when he gets there is Jesus standing beside a charcoal fire. And the reason that detail matters so much is because in John 18, the last image that we have of Peter is that he is denying Jesus standing right beside a charcoal fire. And Jesus is waiting for this man, his best friend, on this beach, and he's got that fire waiting for him. The part one that I want to take you through today, three things. Number one, we're well into part one. I just didn't tell you where we're going. Part one, I'm calling the anatomy of forgiveness. Part two is going to be the basis of forgiveness. And part three is going to be the call to forgive. We are here in the heart of the anatomy of forgiveness. When he lands on that beach and he sees this man standing beside a charcoal fire. Miroslav Volf, who is a, a Croatian-American theologian from Yale, who has written extensively on forgiveness and reconciliation, he comments that first, this is very important, first, to forgive is to name the wrongdoing and to condemn it. The anatomy of forgiveness. First, when we forgive someone, we have to name the wrongdoing and condemn it. Here is this brash man who's passionate. He is self-confident. He's so self-assured that he'd never run. He is Jesus' right-hand man. He is the guy. He is better than all of the 12. And ironically, he is the first to deny. He is the first to run, not just once, but three times. And all of it beside a charcoal fire. N.T. Wright, he says, think back to the smell of that fire wafting through the chilly April air. Think of Peter going out in shame, angry with himself, knowing that Jesus knew, knowing that the beloved disciple knew, knowing that God knew, and hearing the next day what had happened to Jesus. Not even the resurrection itself could wave a magic wand and get rid of that memory. Nothing could except revisiting it and bathing it in God's own healing. See, and the way that this plays out stands in direct contrast with the dominant ethos or the value of the day, which was governed by this law called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It was the law that always recommended an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And so what Jesus does is he takes Peter back to his sharpest moment of defeat. 
I mean, he takes him right back to the lowest point of his life. This part that he looks back in his past and he goes, that night disqualified me. That night is the point where I was always look back and understand pre-denial, post-denial. His life is being divided into two halves and two parts. And Jesus takes him right back there to that most sensitive part, most sensitive moment, to the place where the knife was inserted. Not so that he can inflict more pain on his best friend. Not so that he can remind him, but so that he can restore him, so that he can heal him. This is a redemptive revisiting of the pain and the shame and the past and the denial because without it, there's no healing. I mean, as human beings, we're doing everything we can to avoid going back to those moments in our lives, things that we have done, things that have been done to us, and we're trying to be whole and wholesome and flourish and love people and love our children, but we can't unless we go back to those moments, and Jesus knows that, so he takes his best friend back to that moment. He takes a shame in his hands. He brings it into the light. He says, Peter, let's look back at what happened. Let's name the wrongdoing, and let's condemn it together. That's part one. But he doesn't leave him there, does he? In order to forgive, we've got to name and condemn. But part two, to forgive, we must give the wrongdoer the gift of not counting the wrongdoing against them. That's part two of forgiveness, according to Miroslavl. Glance again at verse 15. Let me read a couple of these verses with you. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And Jesus, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Three times Peter denies Jesus, and out of immense kindness, Peter asks three questions. Peter, do you love me more than these? Second time, slightly different. Peter, do you love me? Third time, Peter, do you love me? And it says that Peter is grieved by the end, because initially, man, he had always answered, yes, Lord. I love you a whole lot more than all of these men. They run, I'll stay. They give up, I'll never do it. I love you more than them. And isn't it unique that Jesus goes, Peter, do you love me more than these men? And he stops and he goes, man, the old Peter would say, yes, Jesus. He's a different man now. He says, Jesus, I don't know if I love you more than them, but you know I love you. Let me stop there. I'm going to stop leaning into myself. I'm going to start leaning into you. That's this unique conversation. Ask him three times. He defers to Jesus instead of trusting in himself. And after each of the questions, Jesus recommissions him. This guy thinks he's going to be a fisherman the rest of his life. And he's taken the seven fishing. He goes, this is my life now. Post-denial, pre-denial, two halves of life. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I'm here to name the wrongdoing but I'm here to heal, forgive, and restore. Peter, let's revisit it so that I can recommission you. I have something for you to be about. Feed my sheep, love my people, heal them, tend them, shepherd them, be a part of their life. You have not disqualified yourself. And that's going to get us to part two, right? the basis of forgiveness. 
Wolf says that to forgive people is to give them more than their due. It's to release them from the debt that they've incurred. Does that mean that punishment is not a part of it? Don't, don't mishear me. Justice is always a part of the equation. But what does it mean to release somebody of the painful infliction of wound that they have incurred against you? That's where forgiveness really begins to change people's lives. So the anatomy of forgiveness, two parts. Name the wrongdoing and condemn it. Most people stop there. The second part is we name it in order to heal it, revisit it, and forgive the debt, right? Now, the basis of forgiveness. If you were to ask most modern people about their functional experience of righting a wrong that has been committed against them, most people most likely fall into two camps. Their description of righting a wrong that has been committed against them generally looks like vengeance or revenge on the one hand, or it looks like an ignorance of that which has been committed against them. It's not that big a deal, no matter how often it happens, so I turn a blind eye towards it and I look away. I don't deal with the pain, or there's this, or there's this aggressiveness to it. And we understand that neither of them work because both of them propel cycles of aggression forward. If you're simply going to say that it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, vengeance for a vengeance, then the, the cycle of aggression, it only continues. And generally, it works in very small ways. Somebody comes to you, and they say something mean and, and cold-hearted. And so what you end up doing is you give them a cold shoulder. Because they end up seeing that, that's your disposition, then they get even more angry, and so the escalation in the room just starts to rise. And so because their voice is rise, raising, then you decide that now you're going to re-engage with them. So it's tit for tat, it's eye for eye, it's tooth for tooth, that the way that I'm going to deal with your wrong towards me is vengeance or revenge. The other one is just the cycle of passive aggressiveness, that I'm being asked to kind of turn away, but the human psyche doesn't like to turn away in the face of injustice. And so you can only turn away for so long before you have turned enough, and now it's time to turn forward towards the person with aggression. These are generally the two ways that we deal with righting a wrong. But biblical forgiveness is neither of these things. It is both better and harder than vengeance or deciding to ignore it. Peter's decision that night, on that fateful night, had created this gaping hole in his own heart. He had valued his own interests more than those of Jesus. He had loved himself more than his best friend. Ultimately, he had rejected and denied being in communion with the Lord of the universe, and the law of the day demanded, in a sense, that Jesus have a relationship with him that looked like the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a shame for a shame. I mean, he is the Lord of the universe. If he has the right to shame anybody for the rejection of him, it's certainly Jesus Christ, is it not? And his best friend enters back into relationship with him, and in a sense, what Jesus says to him is, it once was, right, a life for a life, but now it's my life for your life. Everything changed, Peter. Everything changed. You had a night of agony, but on that same night, so did I. And because I had a night of agony, your night of suffering, that horrible nightmare, it can actually be dealt with. That's what he's saying to him. He says, where it was once a life for a life, now it's my life for yours. Now it's my perfection for your shame. It's my forgiveness for your sin. And the simplicity of the gospel says that Jesus, he came to die the death that you deserve by making the payment that you owe so that he could provide the forgiveness that we need to be healed 
and rescued and redeemed from the sin and the shame and the attitudes and the behaviors that are killing us, wounding others, and ultimately separating us from the God who made us, who loves us, and redeemed us. Friends, when you get married, when you enter into this unique relationship with a spouse, everything that was once theirs becomes yours for good or for bad, right? For better or for worse. Their victories become your victories. Their losses become your losses. Their debts are now your debts. Uh, Your accomplishments are now hers. This is simply the way that marriage works, and this is the biblical picture of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, that his cross is now your cross. His resurrection is now your resurrection. His life, the perfectness of it, is now yours, and then the forgiveness that he secured on that night of agony is yours too. And it changes the dynamics of everything. The basis of forgiveness is always the cross, but then, importantly, it's the resurrection. It's not just a dead Savior, but it's a renewed, resurrected Jesus. Look how Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is so rich and dense, but let me just take you to the heart of it there in 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. This is the linchpin. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And you are defined by that night of agony, however you define it, however you've experienced it. That is your reality. Your life may also be divided into two halves, pre-agony and post. See, in Jesus, he steps into the scene and goes, no, no, that's the old narrative. That's the old way of viewing life. There is something new that I am bringing onto the scene, and it all hinges on not just a crucified Savior, but a, but a resurrected Savior. He goes, if he wasn't, didn't say, it didn't say, if he only died, he goes, he had to be resurrected again to guarantee that the sin has been paid for. If he hasn't, your faith is futile, and you're still dead in your sin. But because Peter is having a conversation with Jesus on the beach, this man offers him breakfast instead of condemnation. Everything changes. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then Peter and all of humanity, we're still lost, but because the resurrection actually happened in real time or because it's historical, because Jesus was a real man who really bled and really came back to life, then all of it changes. To forgive is to give someone more than their due. Forgiveness is to release someone from the debt that they have incurred. This is the foundation of grace. It's the foundation of Christianity, and it is the heartbeat of Jesus. So let me take you to the last part. The anatomy of forgiveness, those two parts, the basis of forgiveness, that other night of agony that covers over Peter's and ours, and then thirdly, this call to forgive. Call to forgive. When Jesus asked Peter those three questions, do you love me? He responded after each question with this command, It's a unique command. You might not expect it. Do you love me, Peter? Each time he says, then feed my sheep. Jesus will never stop serving you. 
there is maybe this assumption that Jesus served us on earth, and now he's this king, and when we get to heaven, we're going to go serve him. Isn't that what most of us think if you've grown up in the church, that now I have this life of service? Can I ask you why you would assume that the resurrected, perfected, glorified Jesus has any other plan than to love and serve you? I mean, this is who he is. It has not stopped on earth as if in this new place. He goes, no, 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 now I, am, I have earned it. Now I'm here to be served. Now I'm king. This is not who Jesus is. See, the resurrected Jesus says, if you want to love me, then love them. Isn't that amazing? If you want to love me, Peter, love my people. What he's really saying is my people carry a lot of wounds, and they're potentially going to have a lot more. I need you to enter into life with them, to love them, bless them, heal them, shepherd them, care for them. You have not lost your commission. You are being reinstated. Love my people. Teach them to forgive. C.S. Lewis, he writes that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's so hard. Somebody said that they think that the Christian sexual ethic is actually the most difficult part of Christianity, and then those who have really wrestled say they think this is the most difficult part of the Christian ethic. But the call to actually forgive. Andrea Peterson writes, forgiving is the hardest thing you will ever do. That's why most people don't do it. Man, we talk about it, we cheer for it, we preach on it, and we are sure that we've practiced it. But mostly the illusion of having forgiven is that the passage of time dulls memory. The ruse will come to light with hair-trigger vengeance when fresh offense, a fresh offense hurls into empty out the gunny sack of half-digested grievances. First part, forgiving is the hardest thing that you will ever do. Here's the question. Why forgive? Why give someone what they don't deserve? Why give someone more than their due? Why name the wrongdoing and condemn it and not just stop? That's so easy. I name your wrongdoing and I condemn it. But then why take the second step of not holding their wrongdoing against them? Why do that? And the resounding answer of Christianity is simple. It says it's because that's how you're loved. That's how Jesus loves you. It's because of him. This is the sort of radical love that Jesus gives to us. And so the call is to give that away. It's to love like that. How do we forgive when it feels impossible? Let's ask that question as we close. How do you forgive when you have fresh wounds or potentially wounds that are nearly as old as you are, things that you've carried a long time? How do you forgive? If you have ever seen a metal that's been heated by a flame, you know that no matter the size of that metal, if it's put into a hot enough fire, that that metal will begin to glow that brilliant orange color. And you know that that metal has no color of itself that reflects that. You know that that metal has no ability to heat itself up. But when it is put into the flame, it glows that brilliant color. You take that metal out of the heat for a certain amount of time, and that color goes away, and so does the heat. But you leave it in, and it will glow bright as the sun. Am I right? That is how you forgive. Because that is what it means to be in union with this God of forgiveness. He goes, I know you can't do it, 
but I have come to make my home in you. I have come to love you. I have come to heal you. I want to reanimate you. There are things that are impossible for the human psyche, for the human spirit, but not impossible for the God of forgiveness. And he goes, man, if I live in you, there is this renewing and refreshment that's going to come as I'm able to extend forgiveness. Your human hand can't do it, but my divine hand in you can animate your human hand to turn this thing that was once a refusal into an embrace. This is what the gospel is about. And let me say, the world is desperate for people who can do this. But you cannot give away what you do not have. But you cannot extend forgiveness if you have not received forgiveness. You cannot give blessing. You cannot give embrace when all you really have is a rejection. You do, not, you do not have the emotional capability to give something away that you don't already possess yourself. And this is why a conversation with Jesus that's personal, that's honest, that's wrestling in real time is so essential for you to take the dynamics of grace, pull them into your life, and see God do something amazing. And you are going to slide back in after this sermon where you can sit there and be inspired into your real-time life where you're going to go, I kind of forgot what he already said. It was something about forgiveness. I think they're wrapping up this series. I have forgotten about the dynamics of grace. That's ordinary. That's every day. That's why we need one another. That's why we're building a community where the conversations can last longer than the hour and a half that we're together. But to the degree that you feel forgiveness, can you give it away? There is this amazing part of the story that I'm just going to mention and close, where at the very end, Jesus gives this prophetic pronouncement about the end of Peter's life, doesn't he? It's a really a cryptic couple of verses, 17, 18, and then in 19, after he gives this proclamation and this prophetic word to Peter, he just says the exact same thing that he said to that brash man three years ago. He goes, Peter, follow me. That never changes. That's what these conversations are about. And that's what Trinity is about. It'll be a place where you can step in, learn to follow Jesus in real time, in real life. There's no new command. There's no upped ante. There's no condemnation. There is this beautiful, listen, there's this beautiful reminder that to be a disciple of Jesus entails suffering. But he's also telling Peter there at the end, he goes, when you suffer for my glory, please know it's not because you denied me. Because without this statement, Peter's going to wonder, is this happening to me because of my past? And here in this last conversation with Peter, he goes, Peter, don't misunderstand. I took the punishment for that night. What's going to happen? It's going to happen. Life is broken. To be a follower means you'll suffer. But the suffering that's coming has nothing to do with the sin of that night. I absorbed it, I've condemned it, and I've covered it. Isn't that a beautiful thing, a little gift to give to his best friend? What he says is, you're going to come out on the other side of that suffering just like me, Peter. I've done it. I've walked the same path. I went to the cross. There is renewal and resurrection on the other side. But he ends with, follow me. And friends, some of you need to follow Jesus into this concept of forgiveness. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the bedrock of Christianity. We are forgiven people. And to be forgiven people means that we are filled with Jesus so that we can glow as the light of the world, him in us, and that people might be changed by him in us. We're going to keep going through this uh, 
concept of being a follower. Even though we conclude the series today, we revolve around following Jesus. We are going to be disciples as we look at Jonah and any other book. We're going to say, Jesus, where are you going to have us go? So we look forward to more conversations with him. Let's pray. Lord, it got hot in here. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit or it's just San Diego. But uh, we thank you that we get to be in this room. We thank you that we get to be together. We thank you that we're a new church. I thank you that uh, we get to be the body of Christ together. We thank you that you are the head of our church, that you are in charge, and that we follow you. We thank you for the graciousness of your offer. We thank you for the kindness of that amazing conversation with Peter. And in so many ways, we got to read in real time that here's a man who weeks before had denied you, but then you invite him onto the beach, you set the scene with that charcoal fire, you take him back to that night of rejection, not to condemn him, but to heal him. What kind of God does that? Well, Lord, if you can do that to him, you can do that to all of us. And that is the great promise, that you breathe forgiveness through the power of the Spirit. And some of us have deep wounds. And I pray that we would be courageous enough to share them with other trusted people, that we might find health and healing and forgiveness. And it does not necessarily mean that justice is not served, but it means that we are released from the pain of being a victim to that crime, to that hurt, to that wounding, to that emotion. And we find health and healing because of Jesus' ability to heal through us and forgive through us. Help us to be that sort of church where conversations like that aren't on the sidelines, but they're a prominent part of who we are. Help us to sing and to love and to show others your love through us. In Jesus' name, amen.